You know, uh, dogs have pretty good PR. Uh, humans generally love dogs, and yet we permit the kinds of experimentation that has been described in the first uh, hour of our, our interview here tonight with the folks from the Center for Humane Economy. Uh, other species that don't have good public images, gosh, uh, terrible things are done to them. I, I posted a story tonight on Naps News on the Coast website about sharks. You know, in this month back in 1975, uh, Jaws was released. This blockbuster movie is the first big summer blockbuster ever. Didn't help the PR for sharks. You, you fast forward to now and sharks are in such big trouble. A hundred million sharks per year are killed. We hear these occasional stories about a human that gets bit by a shark. We kill so many more times sharks in, in part because humans don't care about them. You know, animals that don't have cute faces often don't inspire people to go out and go to bat for them. Rats, another example, primates and monkeys, what's done to species like this behind closed doors of labs that take money from the U.S. government is, is just not acceptable. In this hour, what can be done? What should be done? How can you get involved? Who controls the money? That's always the central question, isn't it? We'll save time in this hour for your calls and questions and comments. We'll be right back with more Coast to Coast AM. Tammy, I'd like to talk to you about uh, chimpanzees and other primates for a moment. I, and, uh, you know, of course, in my reporting career, I've I've had several stories where uh, chimpanzees were at the center of it, a, a horrible lab in New Mexico that had these uh, descendants of the space chimps, these chimpanzees raised and bred for the space program who then were dumped into a medical research lab. Horrible stuff that was done to them. And with the help of the late Harry Reid and some other members of Congress, we, we got them out of there and transferred. I, and I got to meet two other chimps that I knew as infants. Um, and then they grew up. Uh, they escaped. One of them got shot. We accompanied the other one, CJ, to Oregon. They're your state, uh, to a, a sanctuary that's up there. Mm-hmm. And you get to know them. And they get to know you. They're smart. Uh, they're they're sociable. They're, they're incredibly strong. They shouldn't be pets of any kind. But uh, I cannot imagine... What goes on behind closed doors to primates um, that people get away with because it's done out of public view and uh, to these really smart social animals. And as you alluded to a little bit earlier, there is a I guess there's a huge smuggling issue with primates and a shortage of them. And these labs really want to get their hands on as many as they can. So shortcuts happen. What, what's the status of that that industry now and what can we do about it? Yeah, it's really bad. Um, You know, when the pandemic began, we used to get 60% of our primates, the U.S., from China. They stopped all exports into the U.S. and other countries. So in the U.S., and we use way more primates, probably 70,000 a year than any other country, we went to Cambodia and Mauritius to get primates, and we're talking about long-tail macaques and rhesus macaques. The problem is the IUCN has listed long-tail macaques as endangered. Turns out the sources, um, one of the sources in Cambodia where the the U.S. was getting companies like Charles River and Innotiv, who is a parent company of Invigo, they were getting these primates. Turns out they were 
you know, stolen from the wild. Long story short, the Department of Justice issued indictments last year for the exporter from Cambodia and some of his colleagues. And Charles River, one of the biggest animal testing CROs in the world, but definitely in the country, and a notive, also got subpoenas. So the USDA, everybody has said, no more long-tailed macaques coming into the U.S. So what they're saying now is we have a shortage. To tell you what that looks like, pre-pandemic, the cost of one primate to do research on was four to $7,000. In January, it was $35,000 to $40,000. And as of May, it's up to $60,000 per primate. So the animal researchers are not happy. They're calling for more extensive domestic breeding, which we know that is not a solution. It's not going to happen. And, you know, years ago, Congress established the primate research centers funded by the government to do just that. They can't. Um, primates don't breed well in captivity, but to use them for experiments, they have to be bred in captivity under certain scenarios. So we've got an issue where there aren't enough primates, but we have a solution. Stop let's using not, them. <laughs> let's not use them. No, there are better, you know, models and methods and, and all of that. But, you know, talk about reprehensible stuff. You brought up this new bill. PETA didn't undercover um, investigation in Colombia. This NIH-funded lab in Colombia was torturing primates. They did an 18-month investigation. Uh, NIH has finally pulled the funding. Colombian officials rescued 108 uh, monkeys. But now this has spurred some new legislation, um, which we're really happy about. And you, you mentioned it was um, Representative Dina Titus and Representative Troy Nels from Texas, very bipartisan, and it's the Cease Animal Research Grants Overseas Cargo Act of 2023. And it would prohibit the NIH from awarding financial support to any activity or program that uses live animals in research overseas. Well, I guess good luck for that uh, legislation. Um, uh, Zahir, uh, there's, there's big money behind this stuff. I mean, the people that want this to happen have got billions of dollars. This is the way they've always done it, and they want to continue that. And there's a lot of people making money all along the way. I, I, um, I, I would think there are powerful forces that favor that this continues to be done this way, whether it produces results or not. That's right. Yeah, you are absolutely right. I mean, the economic incentive here is, is the key driver for, for this. Um, and uh, the good news is that we are a country of flaws. 
uh, and rules and regulations. And there is a value and a power for each individual in uh, raising their voice and uh, speaking to their legislators and uh, making their opinions known. But we just need more awareness, uh, like like what uh, what um, the, the, you know Tammy and and the group and Wayne and and the Center for Human Economy and Animal Wellness Wellness Action did for for uh, the FDA Modernization Act, which really changed the course of of medical history. I mean, I am not exaggerating by saying that. And, and again, George, thank you for shedding light on, on, the, on these topics. I mentioned that we are a country of law for, for a reason. There are two aspects to this, to counteract the, uh, the economic, uh, uh, the greed and the hegemony and the, 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 the dominance um, of, uh, of the interest group in, 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 in medical research and testing. One, we need to look at the laws that are antiquated, and that's what, again, the FDA Modernization Act did. That's an amendment that removed uh, parts of these laws or amended them with things that make more sense. Okay. And then, you know, I hope at the end we can a little bit talk about about what did the FDA Modernization Act do. And then the other part, George, is that the laws that are generally okay. We have an issue with those in the sense that they are not being enforced properly and they have been abused. And I'll give you an example here directly related to what we are talking about. Uh, the Animal um, uh, Welfare Act, I believe 1966, you know, organized uh, the, the way uh, we treat animals, not rodents and small laboratory animals, but the generally the most animals. In uh, 1985, I believe, there was an amendment to that law that created uh, what's known as IACOC, uh, Institutional uh, Animal uh, Care and Use Committees. And that's what you talked about before in terms of organizing uh, research activities at academic centers and research institutions. So every academic center and research institution that uses animal has to have that IACOC committee. The problem is there are some effective IACOC committees, uh, and there are others that are not as good. And that uh, discrepancy uh, we see across the uh, across the board across the United States. So for this uh, type uh, of laws that generally have guidance that are proper on 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 the on the use and on the humane treatment of animals, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, we need to enforce the reporting. We need to enforce the actual. Uh, uh, implementation of, of these laws on the books. So that, I believe, will, will, will help a little bit in the short term. In the long term, what, what we need to do is to make sure that we wean ourselves of this addiction to artificial animal models and start investing real money uh, or divent, di diverting a, a small portion, maybe, maybe you know, 5% or 10% or even 1% of these billions of dollars into uh, uh, promising and effective technologies that are uh, human relevant and that will 
you know, lead us in, in the right direction when it comes to mimicking human pathology and human physiology for their understanding and development of, of treatments. Uh, yeah, them. makes sense. I mean, does uh, the, the emergence of AI, does that uh, point a way toward uh, having some models Absolutely. that make sense that actually apply to humans? Absolutely. And in fact, the FDA, I'm glad you mentioned that. The FDA Modernization Act defined, that's the beauty about this, this amendment, is that it defined uh, by name certain technologies that are promising. One of them is computer-assisted modeling, uh, which, you know, mean by that artificial intelligence and it was spelled by by name as well as other technologies like organoids and these are you know little miniature organs uh, so to speak uh, and organ on a chip which are uh, small devices uh, they look like a memory stick but they have a lot of you know stuff inside them that uh, represent uh, the structure of tissues with the hemodynamics and with all the intricacies and, and details relevant to uh, to humans. So, so definitely AI is uh, is is one of those. And in fact, AI is so promising, George, right now because we we can use that technology to predict um, the molecular interactions between drugs. In terms of which we spoke about uh, toxicity, for example, we can use mathematical modeling and algorithms um, on a large scale with powerful computing powers like you know, quantum computing and others to actually predict the uh, in silico, they call it, to predict on computers the drug to drug, drug receptor interactions and molecular interactions and what are the molecules and their shapes and size that cause toxicity and who are the ones that are likely to be, you know, less toxic, et cetera. So, so this is an enormously uh, promising area. Yeah. Tammy, okay. I don't know if this question is for you, but, uh, you know, there's a consumer market that's emerging, starting to right now, coming soon, lab-grown meat. Um, I wonder if there is an op- opportunity here if that kind of technology could also uh, produce specimens, flesh, even organs that would could be used in these experiments that don't require us to kill or torture animals, that's that's already being done. That that would kind of be uh, organoids, as the hair mentioned, and organs on a chip. They use human cells. The same ideas with like lab-grown meat. They use animal cells. And with organs on a chip, they use um, induced pluripotent stem cells, and they can manipulate them into the specific organ they want to create. There's a heart on a chip, a lung on a chip, a liver on a chip. And we have peer-reviewed fabulous, you know, papers showing, for instance, uh, Emulate is an amazing a biotech company that develops organ on a chip, they have a liver on a chip that outperformed animal tests hands down. And even they used, you know, legacy drugs that had caused toxicities in humans, even to the point where it killed some people who took the drug. And the Human-relevant organ on a chip made with human cells was able to predict that toxic, you know, toxicity. Oh. So 
It's huge. And if you think about using this and talking about money, we know pharma wants to make money. If we were using human-relevant methods, we could cut time to market in half. Right now it's 10 to 15 years. And R&D costs up to five-fold. It's a big deal. It's going to benefit, you know, everyone if we get cures more quickly. My dad died of Parkinson's, and he was taking a drug that was at least 30 years old, worked on the symptoms. My mother-in-law is taking the same drug, causes hallucinations. She has Parkinson's as well. We've spent all these years, all these neurodegenerative diseases, trying to model them in animals and what do we have. We really don't have anything. Think of Alzheimer's, ALS, Parkinson's. The way to go is to focus on human biology. We yeah. need to do that. We need funding. We need you know, buy-in from regulators, and we have lots of ways that we want to help see that through. Yeah, you figured that diverting some of those billions of dollars into something that might actually work might lead to actual cures and that that would be in the interest of pharmaceutical companies uh, for them to develop uh, products that really actually do benefit humans. And well, then, you know, I almost answered my same question. I don't want to get you in, in trouble, either of you, but maybe that is not what pharmaceutical companies want is cures. <laughs> you don't have to respond to that. Pharmaceutical companies are in it for the money. They're, they're a business, right? But if they can actually find cures, not have that huge attrition rate when they go into the clinic, they're going to get more cures, and it's going to make them, you know, a lot more money. And our drugs are going to be cheaper, and it's just a win-win. And when I met with hundreds of legislators over two years while we were working to get the FDA Modernization Act passed, I always described that bill as a public health bill. It makes no sense to put our clinical trial volunteers at risk when we've tested it on animals. We have no idea what it's going to do when it goes into a human. Yeah, I, yeah well, well said, Tabby. If I may, George. I, I'll tell you what, I, I'm going to have to go to a break. Uh, uh, Zahair, we'll come back, hold that thought. We're going to go to a break, and I promise when we come back, you can finish your, your sentence there. We're talking with Dr. Zahair Nawli and Tammy Drake from the Center of, for Humane Economy uh, about animal experimentation, animal testing. Millions and millions of animals uh, carved up, injected with poisons, killed for no appreciable benefit. There's got to be a better way. Uh, we do know one thing that helps, and that's sunshine. You know, when you shine a light on some of the most egregious examples that we've discussed tonight, uh, things can change. Uh, you know, the, the center led the charge for this FDA Modernization Act. That's an example of, of the kinds of things that, that can happen when people get involved and get fired up about it. Uh, in a moment, we come back with our final segment. We'll take some of your calls and comments. If some of you out there work in the medical experimentation industry, maybe you want to call in and, and give us your opinion. We'll be right back. We'll take a call here in a minute, but Zahair, before the break, I, I promised I'd give you a chance to finish your thought. We were talking about research money, uh, where it heads, yes. and wouldn't it be great to cure something? 
Yes, thank you, George. Very briefly, this is an important point profit and incentives. And and really, the, 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 we are witnessing now what I call a reorganization of the discovery ecosystem um, and, and, and the experimental pipeline. So, and that reorganization, uh, you know, is going, going to entail collaboration between industry and government, between payers, between patients, and between nonprofit organizations like ours. So, the, 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 the driver for 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 the incentive for the industry is clearly there, right? Because they they call it the valley of death, this inability to translate from from basic science to 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 experiments in in humans or clinical trial. They are losing a lot of money, and they want to fill that gap. And as our role is also not to antagonize the scientists in academia out there who have been using animal models because that was the only available tool, or because that was what they were taught. We want to transition them into the innovative technologies, and that is an incentive also. And the same for CROs, same for research organizations or or contract research organizations that are fundamentally now their business model uses uh, uh, animals. We want to also transition to alternative industries that are more into, uh, you know, the innovative technologies and away from from animal testing. I think if we provide these kind of incentives, and I think we can, uh, if, if that ecosystem with all its components come together, we, we will be able to, you know, without creating animosity, transition actually to, to, to the 21st century, uh, thinking about the modeling and, and, and uh, you know, animal testing. Well, hopefully the uh, the public can put some pressure on NIH oh, yeah. about where that money goes. That Absolutely. seemed to be that would help, wouldn't it? Yeah, hugely, hugely. I, I think that's the key, and I, I'm glad you you brought that point. I, I think that is that is key. I think if the American people um, knows where their money is going when it comes to uh, to, to to funding these animal experimentation that are uh, not only inhumane but also ineffective. I think we would have a different reaction. Uh, we'll take a call. Uh, Mary in New Jersey uh, has a question of mine. Oh, she's gone. Okay. Uh, uh, Kelly in Eugene, Oregon is here. What's on your mind, Kelly? Hi, George and your guest. Um, my question is, has anybody ever heard or read the book Dr. Mary's Monkeys? Um, yeah, that rings a bell. Is that about JFK? Yeah, it was tied in. Lee Harvey Oswald was like a part of it. It took place in New Orleans. Yeah, she was a she was a medical researcher, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of like big doctors involved, and I, I think it had something to do. I read the book a while ago, but I just was thinking about it tonight, listening to the show. Um, I know it had something tied in with the polio vaccine, also. I don't. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, does it ring a bell with either of you? Not me. Okay. All right. Thank you. Uh, Thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Let me ask you this, Tammy. Uh, You know, we've talked about medical research. We haven't touched on cosmetics. Uh, As little sense that is made for animal experimentation and trying to find cures for diseases, cosmetics drives me right up the wall. Killing rabbits, injecting them with poison just so you can develop a makeup or hair dye or something. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Are you on top of that one? Yeah. there's, There's no sense. And at this point, approved, validated, OECD-approved alternative methods can be used across the board with cosmetics. There, there's not 
nearly as much animal testing for cosmetics here in the U.S. I actually did a research paper um, about five years ago about the use of the Dray's test, you know, the Dray's rabbit test where they do the skin or the eye test. They put the, you know, chemical in the eye or on the skin and burn them and these albino rabbits. And there were pharmaceutical companies, and these are pharmaceutical companies, were doing these tests even when they didn't need to. But that's changed. I've gone through and looked. They're using reconstructed human epidermis and different eye models. There, there's a lot out there. That is not – there's more, you know, cruelty-free cosmetics than ever before. So that's not where the big use of animals is, for sure. It's, well, you know, drug development and chemicals, like EPA testing. You know, I've seen a lot of examples of people get riled up, and they really can enact change. We mentioned earlier about this PETA undercover investigation that exposed this Colombian lab, what it was doing. And I know the Stop Huntington Animal Cruelty campaign in the U.K., exposed these horrible, this animal testing company that was mentioned earlier. Um, the article I had read talked about uh, um, government crackdowns were in response to activism by the citizens. Uh, Tammy, that you lived in that, uh, in that universe, right? Absolutely. I have for a lot of years. And, and we can make a huge difference. And at the Center for a Humane Economy, you know, we want to influence industry, right, to have a humane economy. That's what we're trying to do. And what's really, you know, fascinating since the FDA Modernization Act has passed, the interest, well, it's global, number one, but pharmaceutical companies, I listened to a podcast from Charles River. Their bread and butter is breeding and testing on animals. And their toxicologist was actually very complimentary about using alternatives. And it's the societal pressure. It's, you know, we couldn't have passed this bill five years ago. The science is now there and getting better all the time. But the public pressure is super important, super important. So I guess the message to our listeners is, see something, say something. You know, you live next to a dog breeding facility or something, uh, say something about it. Uh, Zahir, I would think that there would be some up-and-coming pharmaceutical company that sees the handwriting on the wall. It wants to develop drugs that actually cure something and would say, let's give it a shot. Yes. Oh, Oh, absolutely. And actually, George, you know, a bunch of them, uh, and I'm talking about the big ones, the the, the, the mega pharma assembled themselves in 2016. I mean, they were they were thinking about that as well, uh, and they formed something they call IQMPS, um, Innovation Quality Microphysiological System. It's, it's kind of a small closed club to explore development in these type of uh, technologies. Um, and it's, it's www.iqmps.com. And uh, there are other smaller startups that are also building 
business models around specifically uh, these technologies that we talked about, you know, AI, uh, organoids, organ on a chip, um, and other, you know, microfluidics, other type of uh, uh, innovative technologies that are based more on human relevancy rather than animal models. So, so th- th- there is movement in that direction. In fact, Roche Scientific, which is one of the leading pharmaceutical company in the world, they hired uh, two or three years ago for executive vice president um, and leading of, of research, uh, a gentleman by the name of Hans Cleavers, uh, from, he's Dutch and he's kind of the father of this organoid technology. And that is an indicator to where uh, that pharmaceutical company is is, is going. Uh, the head of uh, GSK the other day uh, made a statement, a really formidable statement, saying that these innovative technologies that take us away from animal testing um, are not a dream and this, they're going to become a reality or something to that effect. So these are big statements from big pharma, George, uh, that are uh, are going to tip, uh, tip the balance uh, in, in our favor. Oh, that's awesome. heard of that before, yeah. Uh, Tammy, you do a lot of uh, groundwork with citizens and getting them organized and, and motivated and direct their energy to try to enforce change. Uh, I talked at the top of this hour about animals that don't really have good PR. Sharks be an example, 100 million sharks a year being killed, and uh, so many of them for shark fin soup that is tasteless and has no vitamins or any kind of food value at all. Um, and sharks are in trouble as a result. Rats uh, are another one. You know, there I don't know how many rats have to die in medical experiments for results that are completely negligible. But rats, a lot of people have them as pets. If we see one in our garage or attic, we'd probably want to kill it, or people do. Uh, but a lot of people have them as pets. They're they have interesting. They're smart. They're they have personalities. Some of them. Um, can you talk about the challenge of getting people motivated to? Go to bat for animals that don't have very good PR. Yeah, and and, and you might be surprised um, that a lot of people actually care about rats, and because we have this problem with the Animal Welfare Act in the U.S., we don't count rats. Oh. We don't even know they're the most used animal, but they don't have to be counted, and I think that's awful. But, like, your example of sharks, uh, I've worked with a couple of shark organizations back in the pandemic. We were panicked about vaccines that use squalene and then get it from sharks, thinking this would increase more killing of sharks. But what you have to do is present the case and explain, you know, these animals... Their existence is important, whether they're cuddly or they're important. And what we are doing, like for instance, you know, with sharks, what are we going to wipe out apex predators in the ocean? It makes no sense. We've done it on land here in the U.S. You just have to explain this isn't getting us anywhere. We're harming ourselves by ignoring the value of the animal. Uh, Zahir, when you uh, speak to colleagues in the medical uh, community and these industries, pharmaceutical companies, do they hold it against you that you are a sort of an animal advocate? 
No, so I mean, this is a time of confession here. I, I started as actually my lab. We used to use a lot of animals. In fact, I uh, my bill every year used to be three hundred thousand dollars on on, uh, on animals, and I generated many lines. So I I, I come from a background, uh, George, uh, where I was a heavy animal user in my. Uh, during my training and when I got my own lab and 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 I, and I was able to in fact in fact the pressure from the academic community from the reviewers from the way you are trained and that again take us to how graduate students and medical students in this country are trained um, on 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 on, uh, on on actually being hooked on using animals for for research it's almost uh, you are a lesser person, you are a lesser student, you are a lesser scientist if you don't use live animals or in vivo. That's kind of how it was, you know, it's indoctrinated into you from early, uh, early, early start as a, as a junior, junior scientist, and that must change. So, so they, they, they so I, I come, you know, I, I now on the other side, because I was able to cure diabetes in my lab, I actually cured, cured, uh, in cancer, and, uh, but in animals, in animals, and we know that this is not it's not something we can do with the same technique uh, and approach in, in humans. So I I kind of have the benefit of, of have been on both sides, uh, so I can talk to 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 my colleagues uh, with the same sensibility. I think uh, that that they, they they understand towards a, a the goal of uh, finding uh, finding cures. At the end of the day, scientists are really passionate people about uh, finding solutions to, to complex problems. I mean, that's really what drives scientists and a little bit of, you know, incentives and grants in terms of money. But really the drivers behind behind the scientists' work, and this is, you know, a shout out to all the scientists and physicians and the healthcare workers out there who really passionately are trying to find solutions for, for these complex problems. And it's our role, and now I'm working on policy and things like that, to create permissive environments for them, working with government, working with other stakeholders to change policies and enable them to actually do what they can do best, and that is find the cures for diseases, but using the right models. Good. Uh, Tammy, we got about a minute left. I know China is probably not even worth the effort because the, their attitudes about animals and even endangered animals they don't seem to care. I don't know if they're an immovable object on these kinds of issues. What about Europe? Um, are they, I know we mentioned about UK and dogs, public uh, outrage changed some things there. But in general, is Europe moving in the direction that, that you and Zahair have mentioned? Absolutely. They are. And we're going to be working um, internationally as well. But there, since the FDA Modernization Act passed, it's kind of amazing. India just passed uh, earlier this month almost the same kind of bill in India. But in the U.K., they took to the parliament floor in January, and one of the MPs said, hey, if the U.S. can do it, we can do it. <laughs> in some ways, they are even a little more progressive in their language explaining their ultimate goal is no more animal testing in the EU and in the UK. Well, I hope that day comes. I want to thank you both for joining us and staying up late. I really appreciate it. I encourage uh, 
uh, folks to check out your work at the Center for Humane Economy. And uh, thanks so much for being here. Good luck uh, as you, Thank you head George. down this road. Thank you, George. Thanks. Uh, thanks to uh, also my earlier guest, Michael Finkel. His uh, book, The Art, the Art Thief, is terrific. Check it out. And to my colleagues there at Coast to Coast, uh, Michael Cosio, uh, Donna Walker, our webmaster, Ryan Stacy, uh, Dan Galani, and Chris Boros. I'm George Knapp. I'll be back in a couple of weeks, everyone. Good night.